0: if uh you had a little bit of trouble getting a parking spot and getting on the lot this morning that's my fault i preached a little bit longer than i should have at 8:45, and we had some responses some good responses to the decision time so apologize for that grab your bible and go with me to the gospel of matthew in the fourth chapter and we're going to continue this verse by verse journey through the gospel of matthew that we're calling let's talk about jesus we're going to look at uh, matthew chapter 4 verses 18 through 25 which Concludes the fourth chapter. Now, while you're turning there, I hope you can multitask. I want to talk to you about something really important for just a moment, and uh, and that's that in less than two weeks, on Friday December, or excuse me, Friday uh, February the 10th, we'll be hosting our second Night to Shine, uh, which is a special needs prom. Uh, for folks here in the community on the south side of Indianapolis. We are doing this again in cooperation and partnership with the Tim Tebow Foundation. Last year we did it. It was just spectacular. I know many of you volunteered. I appreciate that. It was just tremendous. In all my years of serving the local church, I don't know that I was ever involved in anything that was more meaningful uh, on a personal level than the involvement with Night to Shine last year. Well, it's coming up Like I said, less than two weeks, and we need a lot of volunteers because we're going to have a larger group of prom-goers this year than we did last year. So we need a lot more volunteers. And so that's not somebody else's responsibility. That's all of our responsibility. And you can volunteer in really up close and personal ways. You could be a buddy to one of the prom-goers, or you can volunteer somewhere behind the scenes. There's all different kinds of opportunities. But here's what I need you to do, and I'm asking you to do this today today. Uh, I want you to go home, log on to your uh, computer, go to our website, uh, mpcc.info. On the home page, just scroll down and there'll be a list of upcoming events. One of those upcoming events will be Night to Shine. Click on it. And when you click on it, you can go to register to serve and you can see all the different ways that you can serve. I mean, everything from setup to cleanup and everything in between. And we need you. We need your help. You'll be the most blessed if you choose to serve Uh, And I guarantee you, it'll be an unforgettable memory for you. So I need you to do that. All right? All right. Listen, if you got your Bibles open to Matthew 4, let's not waste any time. Let's dive into the text. Stand together with me in reverence and respect for God's Word like we always do. Get up on your feet. I know you just sat down, but get up again. And uh, I want you to follow along as I read in my Bible, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, down through verse 25. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always pray and ask for God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. This past week, I was talking to my son, Andrew, about this passage of Scripture. We were talking about it because... He has the responsibility every week of writing the home group lesson that goes along with the message, and I told him this is an unusual passage in that it is both simple and difficult at the same time. It's simple because it's very straightforward, I mean, it just gives us a very straightforward description of how Jesus spent his time in Galilee. it's difficult in that it doesn't give us a lot of detail. It's mostly made up of just general statements. I mean, Jesus calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John to follow Him. He spends time preaching and teaching throughout Galilee, and He heals people who were suffering. And so, you know, there's a sense that I could just come up here this morning, I could read this passage and tell you what Jesus spent His time doing, and then we could all just get out of church really, really early. But before you get too excited about that, there's got to be more to this passage than just an update. On how Jesus spent his time because uh, you know there's something more for us to learn one of the things that really stood out to me from Andrew's message a couple of weeks ago when he preached from Matthew 4 verses 1 through 11 it's really simple something he said in the very beginning is he said you know there are times in our lives when we learn about Jesus and then there are times when we learn from Jesus and really honestly there are two different things And it's good sometimes to learn about Jesus because we need to know about Jesus. We need to have a knowledge of Jesus, especially when it comes to talking to other people about Jesus. But then there are times when we need to learn from Him. And this is one of those times when we need to learn from Him about how we as the church, and remember when I say that I'm talking about all of us Collectively together, and each one of us individually, how we, the church, need to focus our time and our efforts in this world so that we make sure that we do not drift from the mission, the ultimate mission that God has called us to. Let me try to illustrate what I mean. There's an old, old story. In fact, I debated with myself all week long about whether or not to use this story because I probably first heard it over 30 years ago. You may have heard it as well. And I want to be contemporary in my preaching and my illustrating of the text. But I just couldn't find anything that I thought was more clear in describing how easy it is for someone to drift away from their mission. And so I'm going to tell you this story. It goes like this on a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks were frequent, a group of concerned citizens decided to build a rescue station. The building in the beginning was just a hut, and there was only one boat manned by a few devoted crewmen who kept constant watch over the sea. Day and night, these courageous men faced the dangers of the sea, risking their lives to save the the lives of those who had been shipwrecked. After a while, the station became famous. Some of those who were saved and some who were members of the community wanted to become a part of the mission. So eventually, because more people had gotten involved, they improved the quality of the station. They tore down the crude, simple hut and built a nice multi-purpose building that could house everyone. They replaced the cots with hospital beds. They bought new boats, and the station ended up becoming a popular gathering place for all of its members. It wasn't noticeable at first, but over time it looked less and less like a rescue station and more and more like a social club. Eventually there weren't many members who were interested in facing the dangers of the sea, and so they hired life-saving professionals to do the work of the rescues. One day, a large ship wrecked off the coast, and the hired crew rescued boatloads of cold, wet, frightened people. Some of them were sick. Some of them had lost virtually everything that they owned. Some of them were uneducated. All of them were destitute, completely destitute. The influx of all these new shipwreck victims upset the existing dynamic of the club and upset many of the members of the club because it pushed them out of their comfort zone. And so they called a special meeting where one leader stood up and said, if we allow our facility to be overrun this way, it will become run down. And we all know how expensive repairs can be. Many others nodded in agreement. But then there were a handful of people who said, wait a minute, we are a life-saving station. That's what we do. We can't close our doors to those who need us the most another leader stood up and said, if you're not happy with the way we do things around here, then you need to go start your own life-saving station down the coast. And they did. With a small, simple, crude hut, just like the first station began, a single boat, and a few committed workers, they risked their lives to save those who were wrecked at sea. They saved many lives, and soon the second life-saving station became popular too. just like with the first life-saving station, they ended up building a new facility, buying new equipment, and hiring professionals to do the work of the rescue. The members lost interest ultimately in facing the perils of the sea themselves, but they loved to gather together and talk about their sea adventures of days gone by. Soon, the previous station or, excuse me, like the previous station, they stopped sending boats into the water. And this scenario was repeated again and again throughout the years until today, where you can find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in the water, but the truth is most of the people drown because there's no one there to save them. Now, folks, you know what that story is. In a very real way, that story is a story of the history of the church. It's an illustration Of the history of the church. But it doesn't have to be. We don't have to lose sight of our mission. We don't have to drift away from the original call that God has for us as His church. We don't have to if we will just simply focus our attention on doing the same things today that Jesus did when He was in the world. And when I look at the text that's before us this morning, I see three things that Jesus did that we need to focus our attention on this morning. The first one is this if you're taking notes, we need to make sure that we allow ourselves to be God's instruments to change lives. We need to be about the business of changing lives, not our efforts, just our efforts in the hands of God with the power of God. We need to be involved in the business of changing lives. The first thing we see in our text is the calling of two sets of brothers. First there's Peter and Andrew, followed by James and John, but we get a little bit more detail about the calling of Peter and Andrew, so let's talk about them for just a moment. The text says, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, the text says, they left their nets to follow him. Now there's no reason for us to think this morning that this was the first time Peter and Andrew had ever seen or heard Jesus. According to verse 17, the last verse we talked about last week, Jesus has already been in the area of Galilee and he's already been preaching. Matthew 4, 17 says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what he's doing. And then we begin our text where he calls Peter and Andrew. So it wouldn't be a stretch to believe that they had heard Jesus preach, probably on more than one occasion. But when Jesus speaks specifically to them in this text saying, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men, this was their moment of decision. It was their chance to make a transition from being mere listeners in the crowd to being deeply and fully committed followers. It was their opportunity to embrace a new vision for what their lives could become. This was Jesus calling them from a life of just being day laborers, To a life of purpose where they could accomplish something of eternal value. He ended up doing the same with James and John later on in verses 21 and 22. This all reminds me of the old story of how when Steve Jobs, who was the co-founder of Apple Computers, offered the position of CEO to PepsiCo chairman John Scully. Initially, Scully wasn't interested. He said he was satisfied with his work at PepsiCo. Until John Scully looked him in the eye and asked him this question, do you want to sell sugared water for the rest of your life, or do you want to come with me and change the world? And that grabbed Scully's imagination. He made the decision to leave PepsiCo and work at Apple computers. He did this because he was called to a new vision for his life, a new vision for his life. And that's what Jesus gives to all of us. That's what he calls us to as well. A new vision. He calls us to a new mission in our lives. And that mission is to be used by God to change the lives of other people. When Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men," he was saying, instead of doing something temporary with your life, let me show you how your life can have an impact on the lives of other people for all eternity. And that's something that should appeal to all of us because all of us live with a built-in desire for some level of significance in our lives. And significance is what happens when we commit to becoming fishers of men, when we commit to reaching others with the message of Christ, the message that Jesus offers us a new and a better life than what we're experiencing today. That's really the message that Jesus brought. In Matthew 4, 17, I read it just a moment ago, when Jesus, when we're told that Jesus was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, he was really saying to people, turn away from your old life so you can embrace the new life that God offers Because this is the heartbeat of Jesus. This is the heartbeat of God. The work of reaching men — I hope that we all understand this this morning — the work of reaching men has always been the highest priority of God, always. Jesus came into the world to make this happen on a more personal level, and now He's left that work for us. But let's be honest this morning. I mean, let's just — let's just be really candid and transparent for just a few minutes. Very few of us have ever been involved in any real effort to reach someone else for Christ. You know, there's an interesting thing that we see in the Scriptures when it comes to being fishers of men. We'll just use the word evangelism to describe that. There's an interesting thing in the Scriptures when it comes to the call or the command to be involved in evangelism. On the one hand, it's a call and a command for every single one of us as Christians. You you can't study the Bible, you can't read the New Testament and not see that that's clear. All of us, every one of us, have been commanded to be fishers of men. Every one of us have been called to go out and make disciples. At the same time, the Bible makes it clear that there are some people, there are some Christians, some believers who are uniquely called and uniquely gifted to do this work. And the truth is, most of us don't fall into that category. Most of us don't fit into that category. So there's almost like a paradox. We've all been called and commanded to do this, to do the work of evangelism, but the truth is most of us would not say about ourselves that we have been uniquely called or uniquely gifted to do it, although the truth is there are some who have. I mean, you can't debate the call to evangelism for all, for all of us. It bookends the life of ministry. It begins here in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus called Peter and Andrew and said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You can fast all forward all the way to the end of the book of Matthew, you get to the 28th chapter and the last thing Jesus says to His followers before He returns to His heavenly glory is, He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So He begins by saying, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He ends His time in the world by saying, go and make disciples of all nations. And in between, we see this command reiterated over and over again in a variety of different ways. This is the command of of, of Christ for all of us. This is the will of God for all of us, period. No exceptions. No one listening to my voice this morning is is exempt from this command or this call? No one. No one. And yet at the same time as I mentioned, the Bible really makes it clear that there are some people who are uniquely called and gifted to do this in ways that others are not. Let me, let me try, to, try to describe what I'm talking about. I'm going to put a verse of Scripture up on the screen. It's Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and he's kind of talking about, in this part of the chapter, he's talking about the foundation of the church, and the foundation of the church were built on, on different offices or different roles, leadership roles in the church. And so in verse 11, the first part of it, he says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. The word evangelist there is an interesting word. It's, it's in the original language of the New Testament. It's the Greek word euangelistes. And literally, it means one who brings the good news. We're talking about someone who is, is, is really, in a sense, uniquely called and uniquely gifted to bring the good news. And that good news, again, was that Jesus is that God offers you a better life than the life that you're experiencing now. You need to turn away from your old life so you can embrace the new life that God offers, the better life that God offers. The word's only used three times in the New Testament. It's used here in Ephesians chapter 4 and 11. It's used in Acts chapter 21 and verse 8, and it's used there to describe the apostle Philip, who's called an evangelist, Philip the evangelist. It's used again in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5, when Paul is writing to Timothy, and he tells him specifically, do the work of an evangelist. That's the only time we see these words in the scriptures. Now, some people think Some people think that because this word evangelist is used in such an exclusive way in the New Testament that evangelism, doing the work of evangelism, is actually a spiritual gift that some people are given. You know what a spiritual gift is, we won't have time to go into detail about it, but a spiritual gift is a God, this is the way I've always described it, it's a God-given channel in your life through which the Holy Spirit ministers. So there's a way that the Holy Spirit ministers through you and He does it through spiritual gifts. When you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit began to live inside of you. One of the things that He did to empower you to serve is He gave you spiritual gifts that you used to serve other people and build up the body of Christ. And some people believe that the gift of evangelism is a spiritual gift. Now, I'm going to tell you something this morning. I don't know if that's true or not. I've looked at this from all different sides, uh, and uh, I, don't, I don't know if, if I believe that that's true, that evangelism is a spiritual gift. I certainly would never argue with anybody about it because I don't think it's worth that, but the bottom line is this. Here's the bottom line. I think this causes a problem for some people because the fact that there are some people, when I say people, I'm talking about Christians, because there are some Christians who really clearly are uniquely called and uniquely gifted to do the work of evangelism in a powerful way, that means to other Christians that they're somehow exempt from doing it. But that's not the case. That's not the case. Whether evangelism is a spiritual gift or not, whether it's, there's another explanation for it, that's not the case. And just because you might look at your life and you might, you might think to yourself, you know what, this is not me. This doesn't describe me in any way, shape, or form. I don't, I'm not uniquely called. I'm not uniquely gifted. Doing evangelism on any level, talking to somebody else about Christ on any level, scares me to death. I, I can't, I can't seem to bring myself to do it. And so it must be something that I'm exempt from. That's not the case. Every single one of us, every one of us is called to follow the example of Christ and to do the work of Christ by being fishers of men. On some level in our lives, every one of us, no one is exempt. No one. So what are we going to do? I mean, since that's the case, what are we going to do? And, and since the reality is that very few Christians, and I'm not saying this to try to make anybody feel guilty. I'm not trying this, saying this to beat anybody up this morning. I'm just saying this the truth. Since very few Christians ever involve themselves on any level in doing this in being fishers of men or reaching out to others in the name of Christ or with the message of Christ, what are we going to do? How are we going to embrace the reality of this call in our lives and the reality that this is the will of God for all of us? Well, there's a couple of things we need to talk about. First of all, uh, we need to talk about motivation. We need to make sure that we understand what it is that motivates us to do this, because there's something that motivates us beyond just the desire to be obedient to the will of God. If if your Bible's still open to Matthew chapter four, I want you to do something with me. Just mark your place there in Matthew chapter four, and I want you to go a few pages to your right. Let me hear your pages turning, and I want you to go a few pages to the right till you get to Matthew chapter 13. One of my favorite parts of the gospel of Matthew is the 13th chapter, because in the 13th chapter, and we'll see this when we get down the road in our study, Jesus tells a series of parables, and they're powerful parables. And they're all parables that are described about being about the kingdom of heaven. The last one is called the parable of the net. And it's not very long. It's in Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50. The parable of the net. I want to read it to you this morning. You listen. It says, once again, this is Jesus speaking. Now, once again, the king of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. And then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. And this is Jesus' commentary now on the parable. This is how it will be. At the end of the age, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Stop right there for a moment. All right. Now, the kind of fishing that Jesus is talking about in this parable is fishing by using what would have been called a dragnet. And a dragnet was an extremely long net, probably much longer than any of us could even imagine. Uh, It had weights on the bottom to take the bottom of the net to the bottom of the water, and it had floats on top. And a common way that men in ancient days would use this dragnet is they would attach one end to one boat and attach another end to another boat, and they would row out into the water. Let's imagine they're rowing out into the Sea of Galilee. And when they get a sufficient distance from the shore, they would let the net down, the weights would take it down, and then they would begin to row, they would stretch the net out between the two boats, and they would begin to row to shore. And as they rowed to shore, that net would move silently and surely through the water, and it would literally capture every single thing in its path. And that's what I want you to hang on to. It would literally capture every single thing in its path. And then Jesus said, when they got to the shore, they would get out of the boats. They would pull the net up on the shore. And remember what he said? They would separate the good fish from the bad. They would put the good fish in baskets, and they would throw away the bad. And then Jesus, when he offers his commentary, says, this is how it's going to be at the end of the age. He says, the angels are going to come. There's going to be a separation. He doesn't say the good fish from the bad. He says the righteous from the wicked. And the understanding is the righteous are safe while the wicked will be sent to eternal separation from God a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, here's the point that Jesus is trying to make. He's trying to use this image of this net moving through the water to teach us about judgment because here's the truth that we all need to understand. Just like in this parable, that net, when it was stretched out between the boats and they began to row towards shore, was moving silently but surely through the water, capturing everything in its path, the judgment of God is moving silently and surely through time and it will one day capture everyone in its path, which is... All of us. Every single person. There's no escape. No escape. Now, I can imagine in ancient days in that fishing uh, activity that there could have been times as that net was moving through the water that it brushed up against a fish, and that fish would be startled and would swim off to what it thought was safety. But let me ask you a question. Was there really any place of safety? The answer is no, because they might have remove themselves from the immediate, what they consider danger, but ultimately there'd be no place for them to go. And I think that's the truth uh, in the world today with the application of the parable too. I mean, I, I've known lots of people over the years, and you probably know somebody like this as well, and maybe you are this person right now, and there being, you know that your life is not right with God. You know it. You know it. And there are moments when you feel a deep level of conviction about it, and there are moments when you feel the call of Christ in your life, and you know that the only right thing is to respond in faith and trust, and yet you find a way to avoid that conviction, and you run away to what you think is a safe place where you don't have to feel that conviction any longer, but here's the deal. Ultimately, there'll be no safe place to run one day. There'll be no safe place, and there will be a separation that takes place. Now i'm going to go back to my original question what are we going to do when it comes to this command to be fishers of men what are we going to do when it comes to this the the will of god for all of us the desire and the heart and the will of god for all of us to be fishers of men to reach out to others with the message of christ to be involved with god being used to change people's lives what are we going to do when we don't feel uniquely called or gifted to do this it comes back to motivation Let me just ask you this question. Is there anybody in your life right now that you know, that you love, that you care about, that you know is separated from God, and you know that if their life came to an end today, they'd be separated from God for all eternity? And how does that make you feel? If we have any level of compassion in our lives, if we have any level of compassion in our hearts for people who are not living in a right relationship with God, then that's what it will take to get us to obey the command to be fishers of men. And then we ask well how am i going to do it you know if, if, if that's if that's what we need i need to understand when it comes to motivation what method am i going to follow and i'm going to tell you something I, I don't think the method is nearly as important as the motivation and here's why i say that i've been doing this for a long time i've ra- i've been raised in church my whole life I, all, all i've ever done in my life uh, on, as an adult is serving the local church i don't have any experience in any other area of life and living except right here And I have been doing the work of being a fisher of men. I have been doing the work of being an evangelist. I've been doing the work of of, uh, sharing uh, the truth about Christ with other people. I'm not sure that I'm uniquely called or gifted to do it, but I've been doing it for a long time. And I've used just about every kind of method imaginable, and every one of them on some (laughs) level has worked. Every one of them. Now, not every person, every person that I ever talked to, ever reached out to, ever tried to share the truth of Christ with ended up accepting it and becoming a Christian, but many, many, many have. And I just made a list of the different things that I've done. Even, even back when I was just a boy growing up in church, I would invite someone to church. I would invite someone to church events where I thought that they might have an opportunity to hear the message of Christ. I spent a great deal of my adult life going out two, sometimes three nights a week, knocking on people's doors, just making cold calls. Not announcing that I was coming, just showing up on somebody's door, knocking on the door, hoping that they would open the door, hoping that they would let me in, hoping that we could have a spiritual conversation. I've told you before, I won't go into great detail with you about it, but when I was first in ministry, I used to do that and I would have a film strip projector under my arm. And I would use this film strip projector, as crazy as that sounds today, and it does. It sounds crazy to me today. And yet I can remember doing that when I was a young man. And it would ta- I would need to get into somebody's house more than one time, which was a, a, a miracle. You can't get into somebody's house one time now, But I would do it more than one time because it would unfold the story of God from the Old Testament through the New Testament culminating in the Gospel. And I can tell you the names of people today that you're going to meet one day in heaven because they sat and watched those film strips. I've used a method called evangelism explosion. I've used a method called the peace treaty. I created my own method several years ago that I continue to use today. I've used friendship evangelism, relationship evangelism, sharing life evangelism, whatever you want to call it. I've asked people pointed questions. I've been involved in just actively listening to people. I've shared my story. I've shared my testimony with people as a way to do it. And I have prayed for a lot of people, sometimes for a long, long time. I've used all of those different methods at different times of my ministry and all of them have worked because all of them ultimately gave me the opportunity to share with somebody the content of the gospel. Now, I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are. I don't care how what you think about, you know, your calling or your giftedness or your ability to do this, you can do this. You can be a fisher of men. You can follow the example of Christ. You can share the message of Christ with someone else. And what matters more than anything else, what matters more than any method that you choose to use is your motivation, and that is this. Does your heart break at the thought of people spending eternity separated from God? It's a really simple message this morning, and that's what it comes down to. Hearts that break at the thought of somebody spending eternity separated from God. The first thing that we do to make sure that we don't drift from our mission, to make sure that we follow the example of Christ, is we allow ourselves to be used by Christ, by God, to change people's lives. Now, I'm going to give you two more things, but I don't have time to talk about them, so write these down. And I knew that coming in, but I want to make sure that we see the whole text here. The second thing I want you to write down, the second thing that we see Jesus doing that we need to follow is we need to be involved in to heal the hurting. We need to heal the hurting. I look at the text here and verses 23 and 24, the first passage we talked about, 18 through 22, talked about the calling of these four men. Then verses 22 and 23 says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. We need to be involved in healing the hurting. Now, obviously, you and I aren't Jesus. We don't have the ability to supernaturally heal somebody. We don't have the ability to lay our hands on someone or just make a command and, and, and have sickness or disease or infirmity leave someone's body, but we certainly have the opportunity to reach out to them, to pray for them, to care for them. We all have stories of praying for people uh, to be healed, only to find that they weren't not physically healed, at least in this lifetime. Just like we all have stories of what we would call unanswered prayers in other ways, but just because God doesn't answer our prayers the exact way we ask Him to doesn't mean that God doesn't still intervene in our lives according to His will. How many of you believe that's true? He intervenes in our lives according to His will. We've got to believe that. I've prayed for people to be healed and they weren't. And I didn't care how they were healed, whether they were healed by a supernatural touch from God, a supernatural act from God, or whether they healed as God worked through doctors and hospitals and medicines and things. When I was going through my treatment years ago, I prayed every day multiple times to be healed. And I said, God, if you wanna just, if I, if I wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden I'm healed, then I'll give you all the glory. But God, if I go through, through 10 weeks of this treatment and I let it do what it's gonna do to my body, but at the end of it, I get healed, I'm still gonna give you all the glory. That's the way we should operate, right? Beyond physical needs, though, we all know people who are hurting in emotional ways. We know marriages that are under, under attack and marriages and families that are falling apart. We know people who have no joy and no peace in their lives. Emotionally, they're devastated. We know people uh, who financially are struggling, professionally they're struggling. And for us as the church, one of our big responsibilities is to come alongside of them and pray for them and walk with them and care for them and encourage them. That's what I mean by heal the hurting. The third thing that we're to do as we follow the example of Jesus is we're to teach the word of God. If we look back at the very first part of verse 23, it says Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom. You know, Jesus' primary call in this world was to be a fisher of men and to call fishers of men. His primary call mirrored the heart of God and that was to reach people who were lost. A huge part of his ministry was healing the hurting, but an even bigger part of his ministry was teaching the truth of God's word. Whenever a crowd gathered around, Jesus was involved in teaching. When we come together next week and we continue our study, we're gonna begin looking at the core of His teaching, or what some people would call the core of His teaching. We're gonna look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's gonna be a powerful time of study as we involve ourselves in that part of Matthew's Gospel. But what we need to do, along with being used by God to change lives, along with healing the hurting, is that we need to teach the Word of God because it's the Word of God that gives us the truth to know how we are to live. It's the Word of God that gives us the truth about how we're to interact with one another. It's the Word of God that gives us the truth that helps us to understand the sometimes difficult realities of life, to interpret life. And so we need to be a place that always teaches the truth of God's Word. I don't really need any motivation to do that. I believe that I'm deeply convicted about that need and that responsibility. I think about Paul's words to Timothy when he was encouraging Timothy as a, as, a, as a young pastor. in 1 Timothy in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, when he tells Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of His appearing in His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the Word. He says, be prepared in season and out of season, he says this. He says, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and instruction. the key is that we teach the truth of God's Word. The key is we understand that God's Word is the truth, that it's absolute and objective truth. That's difficult today because fewer and fewer people are willing to accept that. Years ago, people, uh, for the most part, accepted the Bible as being truth. But that's not the case in the world and the culture that we live in today. Truth has become relative to some people. Truth has become personal to some people. In other words, truth is whatever I believe personally. But we have to understand that this is still the absolute and objective truth from God right here. And so we need to teach it. We need to teach it. And we need to teach it without fear. There's always going to be a tension We need to just embrace, understand and embrace this. There's always going to be a tension between grace and truth, between showing people love and grace and mercy, but also standing for the truth. Rather than letting that tension try to drive drive us away from the truth, we need to embrace it and we need to speak the truth with love. the, The deep, deep desire of my heart is to see you and everyone experience God's absolute best for your life. That's the deep desire of my heart. And let me tell you what my conviction is. And I want you to listen to me close. I don't care who you are. You're never, you will never experience God's absolute best for your life if you're living in disobedience to his word. You won't. You won't. And if that creates tension, then you just need to embrace it and you need to speak it with love. Listen, we don't have to drift from the mission that we've been called to, and it's the mission that we've been called to that can bring great joy to our lives and great fruit and success for the kingdom. The very last part of our text says, as a result of... of, of this effort to be fishers of men, as a result of healing the hurting, as a result of teaching the truth of God's word. This this is what the text says happened. Large crowds, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Listen, this is what we need to do. This is what God has called us to do. And we need to make sure that we don't drift from that mission. I want you to pray with me this morning. Thank you so much, Lord, for a chance to talk about these things. I love you so much, so grateful for your words.